China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Martin Dimitrov, Professor of Political Science at Tulane University. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Dictatorship and Information, Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Communist Europe and China, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jude. First question is about your own background, career trajectory, and intellectual interests. You've now been working on authoritarian systems, dictatorship for, for a very long time. What set you on this path? What keeps you, you know, continually interested in, in understanding authoritarian regimes? Thanks for this question. I think in a large extent, it's about when I was born and where I was born. I was born in Bulgaria in the mid-70s, and I was 14 when the Berlin Wall collapsed, and I didn't quite understand what happened. So I have spent my life since 89 thinking about why some communist regimes collapse and why others survive. So my interest in China was based on this prior experience of not quite knowing why communist regimes turn out to be impermanent in certain settings. And I've been working on Chinese politics uh, for some time, indeed. And my first book was not about authoritarian regime resilience. It was about intellectual property rights in China and how these specific types of rights are protected and certain types of bureaucratic inefficiencies in this area. But indeed, for the last 15 years or so, I have been working on authoritarian regimes, thinking comparatively about China and other types of autocracies and trying to get to some answers as to why the Chinese regime has survived, whereas other communist regimes have collapsed. I wonder if I can ask you perhaps a slightly unfair question, recognizing that there are great scholars of authoritarian political systems who did not grow up in communist or post-communist systems. That being said, I wonder what you think your own personal background and, and the fact that you lived in a pre-collapse communist country, how does that shape you as a scholar that we may not see those same attributes in someone who, for example, grew up in the United States, but is spending their life studying authoritarian regimes? I have not really thought about this before. So these are the best questions, the ones that uh, catch people off guard. So maybe the way to, um, to answer your question is to describe how I often feel when I read studies of authoritarianism. And I think that there's oftentimes an emphasis on how repressive authoritarian regimes are. And of course they are. But the type of authoritarianism that I grew up and under, the, the final years of communist rule in an East European country, did not feel as particularly repressive. So this, from my point of view, makes it even more interesting. So how does a regime survive when it is using repression, but this, this is not the main mechanism for ensuring um, ongoing uh, regime persistence? So Maybe what my particular background gives me is this mismatch between what I felt that I experienced and what I lived through and what some of the 
literature, especially some of the older literature, is, is focusing on, which is this repressive aspect of authoritarian regimes. So, you know, from, from my point of view, there's more to repression in authoritarian regimes. So they survive through multiple mechanisms uh, that involve other avenues for ensuring their stability. So, Martin, I, I wanted to now dig into the, the new book. And again, it's called Dictatorship and Information, Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Communist Europe and, and China. A, a question I was originally going to ask is, why Bulgaria and China? But I think you've, you've sufficiently answered in your you know, introductory biography question. I wonder if instead I can ask you to just take us into the heart of the real, the puzzle here, which is around this idea of, of information access in authoritarian regimes. And so I wonder if you can first just explain to us, what is, a, what is the dictator's dilemma here? Yes. So uh, the dictator's dilemma is at the heart of this book. And there is um, a large body of scholarship uh, that argues that in dictatorships, the autocratic ruler is unable to know how much popular support he has. And as a result, dictators are unable to calibrate repression. So they over-repress, which makes them uh, more unstable and then leads to southern coups and revolutions. So the general expectation that is created by this literature on the dictator's dilemma is that dictatorships will be brittle and short-lived. And what I do in this book is I argue that there is a subtype of dictatorships, namely the single-party communist regimes, which are the longest-lasting type of authoritarian regime. And this therefore suggests that they have found ways to mitigate or perhaps even solve the dictator's dilemma. And then I go through some more recent studies that have articulated several different mechanisms for solving the dictator's dilemma. One of them is by encouraging competitive elections. Another one is by encouraging protests. And the third one is by encouraging investigative journalism, you know, media liberalization. So what I argue is that, of course, all three avenues, competitive elections, protests, and liberalized media create information about popular discontent, and therefore they help solve the dictator's dilemma. But the problem from the point of view of dictators is that this information circulates both horizontally to other members of society, and it also circulates vertically to leaders of the regime. So what my book is focusing on is what other strategies might exist in autocracies that allow only for the vertical circulation of information. And I argue that this is what dictators want. They want to have exclusive channels for privileged circulation of information about popular discontent that only goes up to them, that only circulates vertically. I wonder if I could just interject. I wanted to ask a, a comparative question, which is, and this may be a stupid question, so feel free to say it's so. But when I was looking through the book, I was thinking, is a, a scarcity of accurate information also a feature of other regime types? Now, I, I grant you not on the same end of, the, of a spectrum, but I was thinking in the United States where we have competitive elections, one of the elements I've noticed over the last few years is our surprise at some election results, despite the fact that we have clear polls indicating X result, right? And this has led to an idea that the polls are you know, now all wrong. Again, I realize we're talking about distinct things and I'm not trying to say it's the same information problem, but I'm just trying to get to the, is a political leader's 
access to to high fidelity information uh, challenge in other regime types as well, even if the type of challenge is different than what, for example, Xi Jinping is dealing with? Yeah, this is a great question. So there, there are two separate problems here. And one is the lack of information. So the absence of access to accurate information. And then there's a separate prog- problem, which is that sometimes leaders have information, but they're unable to act on the information. So in terms of the scarcity or lack of information, this is a general problem in autocracies. Um, of course, some democracies may experience it as well. Uh, but when it comes to the election polls and this element of surprise, because individuals perhaps didn't believe the polls, and then it turned out that the polls were accurate. This is closer to the second problem, which is that sometimes there is information and leaders are unwilling to take it into account. They discount the information, or sometimes they actually understand what this information means, but because of various constraints, they're unable to act on it. You know, 9-11 is another example, right? I mean, there was some intelligence that indicated that there were plans uh, for some major disruptive event. Doesn't appear that much was done about that information. So leaders, especially when they're dealing with complex information and complex situations, are sometimes incapable of acting on the information that they have. But at the center of my book is the first problem, uh, because that problem precedes the second. So the first problem is, how might an authoritarian leader who doesn't have information develop mechanisms for collecting that information? And later on, you know, maybe we can talk about the quality of information that you might get. And maybe that, maybe actually, now that I was listening to you talk, I realized that the the question I'm polling that might have a, an analog in authoritarian systems is the poll didn't tell you as much as you thought it did, right? And that might be because you're asking the wrong questions. You're only um, reaching out to people who have landlines. So there might be a, a an analog there in authoritarian political systems of you gather massive amounts of information, and you might think it tells you X, but there are there are challenges with you know interpreting the information, or you might overinterpret what the information tells you, and and sort of miss aspects of how people, whether that's preference falsification or you know uh, anyway. But but maybe we can talk about that later. Yeah, I, all of these problems exist. There are certain sources of information that produce more granular insights. And then there are other sources of information where it's not quite clear what you might make with, with the information. Uh, for example, uh, you know, one part of my book is you know, I, I'm focusing on how authoritarian regimes are monitoring rumors and, and, or jokes and even dreams. And you know, these are super interesting sources of information because when you hear that you know, somebody's monitoring rumors and jokes and dreams, this is not something that we think about on a daily basis. But I argue that these sources of information are producing information that has very low utility because it is not particularly granular and it's not quite clear what you might make with a subversive dream, for example. And then there are other sources of information that are much more useful for uh, autocrats because they produce more granular insights. I wonder if I can next ask you to talk a bit about the horizontal versus vertical channels. So if I can take both of those as distinct set of channels first, what are the promises or what are the advantages of horizontal channels and what are the, the pitfalls from a, a dictator's perspective? I can imagine some of the horizontal channels might have higher fidelity or, or collect more 
you know, interesting novel information. But as you said, that spills over beyond just within the regime. But can you talk a bit on the horizontal channels and, and maybe drawing on, on, you know, China and Bulgaria's experience? Absolutely. Um, I mean, so to take an example uh, from the, the horizontal, um, one example is protests. So protests, this is something that a lot of scholars in, in the China field are studying. Of course, this was a concern in, in the East European communist regimes as well. So protests, of course, reveal quite accurately popular discontent. There's a twofold problem with protests, however. Um, so first of all, this discontent has already move to the stage where it is publicly expressed. And what authoritarian regimes prefer is to detect discontent before it is publicly expressed so that they can counteract it at an earlier stage when the danger that may result from responding to protests is more limited. So once discontent blows into, into the street, uh, we are in a dangerous situation. The protests are revealing accurate information, but they can be mismanaged. And um, the problem with protests is that this information circulates to other citizens. So knowledge about levels of discontent is more widespread than it would be if this information was transmitted through another channel uh, where only the higher-ups get to see it and get to understand what the patterns of discontent are. So I, of course, think that the horizontal channels provide accurate information, but at a considerable cost for regime insiders. And the cost is that this information may um, stimulate further collective action, and it makes it known to other citizens how widespread dissatisfaction with the regime is. This is not something that autocrats want. So now, you know, moving to the vertical, you can immediately intuit the value proposition to an autocrat if they worked well, which is you basically can know everything, but without some of these sort of social contagion or spillover effects. So I can get the advantages, but can you give us an example of what some of the vertical institutions are and, and what some of the functional downsides or, or sort of trade-offs there are with, with vertical versus horizontal? Yeah. So in terms of the vertical transmission of information, there are a number of institutions. And one way to divide them is to think about institutions that are focusing discontent that may have political implications, and then to think on institutions that are focusing on dissatisfaction, which is more centered around daily life issues like jobs, problems with utilities or, you know, like difficulties in, in, in terms of goods in short supply, which of course was a major problem under communism in Eastern Europe, as it was in China until, until uh, reform and openness uh, began. So the institutions that focus on politically tinged discontent, um, such as the secret police, have specific sets of interests, and those interests may color the information that they collect. The secret police wants to know about conspiracies um, against the regime. It wants to know about acts of subversion and these, these types of events. Um, so this information is in some ways partial. And then the information that is collected through other channels for the vertical transmission of information, for example, the citizen complaints channel, which is something that interests me uh, a great deal. This information focuses on dissatisfaction that individuals have because they didn't receive proper compensation for their job, they, their, their, their land was taken away from them, they suffered some other type of 
injustice from a government agent, but this is not necessarily uh, politically inflected. So this channel, the analysis of complaints, um, is not focusing on political dissatisfaction. It is focusing on socioeconomic grievances. And each channel has its limitations. Um, And it's because of that that authoritarian incumbents foster multiple channels for the collection of information. And uh, what they're interested in is um, triangulating um, across these different sources of information in order to get a fuller picture of the extent of discontent in society. So what we have in, in the collection of information through these vertical channels is redundancy, and this redundancy is by design. Uh, multiple channels are producing information that sometimes overlaps, other times it doesn't. Regime insiders know what the shortcoming of each individual channel is, and then as a result are at least in theory capable of getting a relatively full picture of the discontent in society. One of the things I wrote down, but you anticipated it, is I, I wrote down vertical intermediaries in my notepad, by which I was thinking that gives a lot of power and influence to brokers of information who are at some place in the vertical chain of command, right? I guess you're saying you solve that by having multiple flows of information, but it would seem like the state security would be the primary channel for assessing and interpreting you know, threats to the regime, instability. You might not necessarily at the top of the vertical chain be getting accurate information from them, correct? I'm just imagining that, of course, if I'm if I'm the primary node for managing an issue and also kicking information up the, the chain of command about that issue, I have a incentive or bias to send up certain types of information and not other types of information, correct? So if I, you know, if my job is social stability, I'm going to at the margin prefer to allied, you know, data and information that shows that I'm failing at my job. How, you know, in your case studies, how widespread is that sort of information corruption based on, you know, equities and self-interest in, in the vertical channels? Yes. Um, this, of course, is um, a reasonable question that somebody might have. But again, the solution to this problem is to incentivize multiple entities to collect information. So if we stay with social stability, yes, this is something that the Ministry of Public Security collects information about. The Ministry of State Security is also interested in this this problem. But those are already two separate reporting streams. Then in addition to that, the Communist Party, of course, is an information collection channel um, that um, various departments in the party are monitoring the local situation. They transmit reports to higher-ups. Then in addition to that, we have the internal journalism system, which is very, very unusual outside of the communist regime. So communist regimes have internal journalism. I have not found evidence that it exists outside the communist world. But this internal journalism system is producing confidential reports that do not circulate publicly. They circulate to regime insiders. Another important source of information is the internet service providers, uh, which uh, of course monitor uh, public opinion on the internet and produce reports uh, on that matter. Even though an individual information provider may have incentives, this happens, of course, 
to misrepresent uh, the information. When you have this redundancy and you are comparing um, the reports produced through different information streams, eventually a clearer picture emerges and it helps to mitigate some of these concerns about agency problems. I wonder if just spend a few minutes um, looking at a few country-specific examples from the book. So one is you talked about a, a three-tier, three-pillar approach used in Bulgaria to deal with ideolo- you know, quote-unquote ideological subversion, repression, bread, circus. I wonder if you can talk a bit about, uh, I, I think I know what those are, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about specifically the bread and circus part of this I'd be interested in and, and how that was leveraged or um, used to try to bolster regime security. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the, we all know about repression. And of course, I talk about repression extensively in the book, but it is not my main area of interest uh, in terms of how authoritarian regimes survive. So this notion of bread and circuses as responses to the threat of ideological subversion in Eastern Europe is something that is, that is really interesting to me. So first, what is interesting is that by the 1960s, there was this sense that the main external danger that communist regimes face is not a military invasion. In the the late 1940s and the 1950s, there was this concern that there might be a military confrontation between the East and the West. By the 1960s, the concern is that the West is using ideas, ideas about democracy and, and freedom, as a mechanism for subverting communist rules, the communist rule. And then the question was, what can communist regimes do about that? And one response was to provide citizens with consumer goods. These consumer goods were, of course, of low quality, but they were still important as a response to this external competition between the East and the West. Because one part of this ideological battle was which system can provide a higher standard of living. And the idea on in, in, in Eastern Europe was that communist regimes are also capable of increasing standards of living. And of course, there was Khrushchev who was arguing that by 1980, the Soviet Union will have built communism finally, and that standards of living in the Soviet Union would be higher than they were in in the United States. This, of course, never happened. But there was this effort through the uh, provision of consumer goods um, and, and various welfare entitlements to improve standards of living. So this is what I mean by bread. And then circuses, um, in order to distract citizens from um, seeking for Western entertainment, with the idea that entertainment is always ideological and it is, it is carrying ideas of various types of freedom. What the East European regimes did is they developed indigenous entertainment. And these circuses, various types of spectacles, were uh, deployed as a conscious strategy to distract from the, from the consumption of Western cultural products, but also to build patriotic loyalties. Um, and so in a one part of of the East-West competition was who would get more gold medals at the Olympics. And if one looks at the tally of the top 10 gold medal winners during the Cold War, it is a very neat split between East and West. Um, so I use circuses as an expansive concept here in terms of indigenous cultural products that aim to uh, distract from the attractiveness of, of Western um, uh, cultural products. 
I'm not sure this question is answerable because again, this may be a stupid question, but as you were talking about the production of cultural entertainment to compete with, you know, external cultural products, I was wondering how authoritarian regimes assess efficacy of tools and actions they take. In the private sector, of course, you know, if Jude Blanchett Corporation puts out a cultural product, I know how to assess whether or not it's working, which is, you know, subscribers, revenue. And if it's not working, I course correct. How do authoritarian systems evaluate effectiveness of given action? So it's Bulgaria, it's 1976. We put out a TV show that's designed to sort of highlight the virtues of, you know, strong Bulgarian communist ethos. How internally am I saying, you know what, Martin, that was a hit? Well, let me give you a specific example. So there was such uh, a show. There was um, this extremely popular TV series called At Every Milestone. And it focuses on the guerrilla struggle by the Communist Party before the establishment of the communist regime against the previous regime. And then that's the first 11 episodes of this series. And then there are the the next um, 11 episodes, which focus on establishing the state security system after the communist regime is created. So the one way in which the communist regime knew that this series was popular is that the streets were completely empty when it was being screened on TV. So everybody was at home. And of course, there was just one one channel at the time in the early 70s. Everybody was at home watching this series about the state security system. The lead male actor was the most famous actor at the time in Bulgaria. And you know this was this was a hugely popular series that got rescreened and you know throughout communist the communist period and it's popular even now and you know that's a separate question as, as to why it is popular thirty years after the collapse of communism but you know this is this is a specific metric for the popularity of of this system in the Soviet Union there was a similar TV series called Seventeen Moments of Spring and you know, that was that was a massive massive hit. But you know what I remember from my childhood is that when Western TV series was screened, the, the streets were also empty. So you know those were extremely popular as well. But yeah, this is one way to assess the popularity of a cultural product. Yeah, first I was thinking in the in the modern Chinese context, there there is you know there there are feedback mechanisms because China does have a box office, and oftentimes you can see outside of hits like Wolf Warrior Two, a lot of the cultural products are are total bombs. So so you're right. I guess you can assess that. I guess it was more I was trying to think of the broader question of do authoritarian systems learn and do they get better over time? And it's a question I've asked other people. You're you're a political scientist who does comparative work on authoritarian systems. I've always wondered to what extent do we know about how authoritarian systems are are studying and learning from other authoritarian systems. Obviously, the collapse of the Soviet Union has been a massive area of study in China, so it's clearly happening. But I almost wonder if there's someone in the deep in the bowels, you know, of the Chinese system who's reading your work, you know, and going, "Aha, that that's what we need to do to to get better at this." Well, uh, Jude, um there are a few different questions here. So let, let me take the important question of, of learning rather than whether my work is, is read. So on the issue of learning, I think what you brought up, the Soviet collapse, is the perfect example. It's very difficult in general to demonstrate conclusively that a process of learning has taken place anywhere. 
But in the case of the Soviet collapse, we do know that the Chinese um, Communist Party, up to this moment, continues to emphasize the importance of learning from the Soviet collapse. We also know what the specific lessons have been. For example, one lesson is that media liberalization undermines authoritarian regimes. Another lesson is that political pluralism, allowing other political parties to exist, undermines authoritarian regimes. A third lesson is the importance of ideological vigilance. So those are very, very specific lessons that the Chinese Communist Party drew after very intense study of the um, Soviet and East European collapses. And scholars have documented the tens of thousands of articles that have been written about this issue in China. Thousands of books have appeared, the documentaries, um, the numerous documentaries, some of them only for restricted circulation. So, you know, this is this is a specific example of the Chinese Communist Party learning from other communist regimes. And there, what the Soviet collapse demonstrated is that, in fact, communist regimes do not last forever. And, you know, this, this was a clear lesson that uh, the Chinese Communist Party took very, very seriously. It's maybe a good segue to, you know, a final question. And I realize we're just you know, skimming the surface of this very, very rich book. So obviously the message to listeners is you have to go out and buy this. This is just a short preview. But I do think the book gets into a lot of the key questions and policy challenges folks are, you know, policymakers are dealing with as they try to understand the decision-making process of, in China's case, an increasingly opaque political system. You just mentioned lessons learned. One of the big questions now is around how China is processing Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what what it tells China about, you know, resilience and stamina of the US, NATO and Europe, what it tells China about the, you know, possible reaction to a Chinese action on Taiwan, would there be sanctions? So there's a whole big set of questions around lessons learned. I wanted to ask you Without knowing, well, first of all, do, do you have a, a take on that? But more importantly, from an epistemological sense, how should we think about that question of, you know, what is authoritarian regime X learning about event Y? My own bias is a slight bit of skepticism. Usually when someone says the lesson China is learning from the war in Ukraine is X, what I think they're saying is, here's what I think they should be learning, uh, or here's what I'd like you to think they're learning because it advances my agenda. So how do you think about this issue of lessons learned and, and states' capacity to effectively learn lessons? Yes. Well, um, I mean, with, with regard to the specific issue of what China is learning from the war uh, in Ukraine, I think it's too early to know because we have an event which is still in process. The war hasn't ended. We don't know how it will end. And lessons are learned once the event has, has fully unfolded. On that, I think time will tell. And eventually, we will know what lessons China learned. Um, on the other issue of do states learn, they do if the event is of significantly large magnitude. So to go back to this collapse of the to, the, to the example of the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, this is one instance where China did draw a lesson, um, an important lesson about the possibility of regime collapse and then the steps that need to be taken to avoid that. 
In other cases, perhaps, you know, learning is, is slower or it's harder for us as scholars to demonstrate because, you know, a large part of this book uh, focuses on how do we know how authoritarian regimes work and how decision making takes place in autocracies. And, you know, my argument is that we need to look at the right sources. We need to look at the sources that authoritarian incumbents looked at themselves rather than at sources that autocracies decide to circulate publicly. And, and those types of sources uh, circulate publicly for, for other reasons uh, in order to, to manage public perceptions of the regime. So when it comes to these lessons, uh, I think you know, our capacity to know whether a lesson has been learned hinges to a large extent on having access to the right sources. And this type of access emerges slowly. If, if at all. Sometimes we never have access to the right sources. So we, we engage in a lot of guesswork. Some better than others. And, and you, Martin, have the requisite humility, but also uh, nuance to, to be able to make these assessments. So I appreciate your comments just now, but, but also more importantly, just really appreciate this really rich book. I would also recommend you co-edited a volume on authoritarian resilience from a few years ago that has a, a rich number of, of case studies drawing on comparative scholars who look at China, who look at the Soviet Union, um, and get to this you know really important question of including but beyond repression, how do authoritarian regimes continue to perpetuate? And uh, it's just incredibly important work. And it's one now I just find as important than ever because we're in another bout of China collapsism, you know, looking at slowing economic growth, looking at, you know, the the hasty retreat from COVID, which is creating, unfortunately, sort of right now untold suffering in the country, looking at a dictator who is isolated. And I think many are coming to the conclusion that, you know, the end is nigh. And, and I'm always hesitant when I see these, you know, promulgations, because I, I feel like I never quite know what the other side of the balance sheet looks like. You know, I, I, I only know the kind of observable negatives or downsides or, or mistakes of a regime, but unless you're there and embedded within its structure, it's hard to know, you know, the, the average lived experience. Uh, and I just imagine a Chinese analyst, you know, writing assessments for Xi Jinping about the United States. I bet if I read those, my eyebrows would be raised at a few of the kind of big assessments because, of course, it's hard to get a sense of a, a real good tactile sense of resilience of a country if you're not culturally, you know, embedded in it. You know, you can overinterpret events, you can underinterpret events. Um, but anyway, that was a very long way of saying I think your your work has really helped me think about these issues and has, if anything, given me a lot of caution about my natural tendency to make large sweeping conclusions. So I, I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you, Jude. I mean, this was a real pleasure. I thank you for this opportunity to, to, to speak with you and for these extremely thoughtful questions. Thank you. Again, the book for listeners is Dictatorship and Information, Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Communist Europe and China, and it is available on booksellers, but you should definitely buy it directly from the OUP website. That way, Martin has a chance of making any money off of, uh, off of his hard work. So uh, thanks, everyone. And Martin, ho hope to chat again or, or see you at some point in, in real life. Thank you, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.